Some people say you can't make a classic movie about insurance. And as of today, I'm one of them. Boo! Boo, yes! <laughs> Boo! More classic insurance films! Welcome to The Rhetorizer, a book show, a show about books, the noir season. I'm John with an H, and I'm joined by Racy Roxanne. Hi. Hey. Kinky Kevin. Hi. And Jiglin Jacob. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was our kind of our, our raunchiest uh, intro yet. Yeah, very sassy. Yeah. A little uncomfortable, actually. I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> our HR department Bye. will be uh, reaching out to you shortly. Yeah. Our H Noir department. <laughs> oh! Pretty good. Uh, awesome, awesome segue, Kevin. Yeah, this is our Noir season, Recovering Noir. Last episode, we covered James M. Cain's Double Indemnity, the book. And this week, we're covering the film adaptation of that book, Double Indemnity, the movie. 1944, directed by Billy Wilder. Some people say it is the noir movie, the definitive noir movie. Some people even say it's a good movie. Are they right? We're going to find out. All right. <laughs> well, we already know what Kevin thinks. No, it- you, the listeners do not. And also, I don't actually know what he thinks, but I think I can guess. Um, right. So, Jacob, tell us a little bit about this movie. All the juicy goss that you come to me for. Um, I'll try to keep it brief, but essentially the reason that we're watching this after reading the book is that, uh, as you alluded to, this is the movie that kind of crystallizes noir as a genre in some way. It's not necessarily the first noir movie, I don't think. Uh, Roxanne can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, There may be others that precede it. But it's kind of the first big one, wins a bunch of Academy Awards, and everyone goes, wow, noir is cool. And it sets the sort of standard for a lot of the style of what becomes noir. I think also it's one of the movies, like the French critic who came up with the term it's one of the movies that he named as as like what made him you're saying the, the french term. critic like who 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 is this french critic like what's the deal with i this? forget this, his name it's okay don't say his name but is this this is the guy that coined the term like film noir right exactly yeah right because because noir it's, listeners may or may not know oh my god oh don't my go god. don't go don't go on this again judge all right I want to hear him out. It means I hear him out. John. What does it mean? Tell us what noir means in French. It means black in French. Thank you. Tell us every episode, please. Yeah. This is a um, bilingual podcast. So <laughs> Hashtag Canada. One of the first things I noted about this movie is screenplay by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Ray Ray. Yeah. Now, What's the deal with that? just in case some listeners don't know, who who is Raymond Chandler, uh, Jacob? Why, why is, Raymond why is Chandler is the most confused person i think i have ever encountered in a biography he was born in the united states to a family of irish protestants who hated catholics uh moved jacob to- jacob wait before you before you do the answer i was looking for was raymond chandler was a famous novelist of hardware <laughs> not yet he's not not yet he's not but, but, but please but please continue <laughs> famous raymond catholic was a hater famous catholic Hater. <laughs> uh, famous Catholic hater. He moved back to Ireland and then London when he was 12. Um, promptly gave up being American. Decided he wanted to be as English as possible. Uh, moves back to the United States in his early 20s as a guy with a bunch of weird British affectations. But he still virulently hates Catholics, which will come up a little bit later in this season. Um, he has both mommy and daddy issues, which is incredible. Uh, he ends up marrying uh, his best friend's mom, uh, who had lied about her age and was 10 whoa, years whoa, whoa, whoa. older. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Raymond Chandler married his best friend's mom? He did. After serving in the Canadian military in World War One. Wait, the mom served in the Canadian military or Raymond Chandler did? Ray, Ray, Raymond Chandler served in the Canadian military and came back and promptly married his best friend's mom. Who he thought was younger or older than she was. She was about she 20, was a- she was, she was 23 old, years older than him, but he thought she was 13. And when they got married, apparently when the marriage license was issued was when he found out there was an extra decade in there. But he thought, but the, was his best friend his age? Like, did he think she yeah, was 13 yeah, yeah. when his best friend was born? 
I don't. It just never came up. And just she, apparently, she was a very good-looking woman for her age. And this, this talented <laughs> writer, really bad at math. How are we yeah. opening like the episode about the most famous noir film of all time with this? There's some noir aspects to this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <it's laughs> bring it back to the movie, Jacob. I just want to make one more note about the relationship. Uh, it's something that I think is beautiful, which is that when she died, he tried to fudge the death certificate to make her a decade younger. And I hope we all have that special someone in our life who would perpetuate a weird and completely unbelievable lie for us, even after we're gone. Um, but as for Raymond Chandler, uh, he is brought up in a sort of like English classic, English classical education. He wants to basically write about like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, oh, but that's then- funny because in um, in at least one Philip Marlowe book, there's like there's a whole scene where like. Uh, Marlo's like looking at like a stained glass like painting or a stained glass like window of like a knight and he's like I'm 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 that knight like he like he identifies yeah. with it yeah there's a lot this of this like, is a Damon Chandler book yeah, yeah I think yeah, it's in yeah. one of the first Philip Marlowe kind of hard-boiled detective the long goodbye novels long goodbye that's right Anyway, uh, he hates modernism. Like, he's in London at the same time as Virginia Woolf, and he's, like, writing nasty reviews of modern poetry and, like, modernist, like, literature, because he's, like, this is bad. Um, moves to the United States, uh, ends up in the oil uh, business. I'm a little anti-Raymond Chandler right now, because Virginia Woolf is incredible. <laughs> I, like, I don't know if he's writing specifically about her, but he just thought, like, he wanted to do, like, 19th century Victorian bullshit. And he was like, this is going nowhere. I hate it. Uh, it's one of his first uh, recorded hatreds, which uh, will come up uh, a lot with him. He's one of the messiest drama people that uh, exist in uh, our season. Um, anyways, he gets a successful oil career, uh, oil executive career, and drinks his way out of it. And then finds himself needing to make money to support his uh, wife, who's 23 years older than him. Um, and starts writing hard-boiled detective fiction. Becomes huge. And he is kind of after Hammett, Dashiell Hammett, and James M. Cain. And he kind of thinks he's too good for the genre. And he has this master plan that he's going to get out of writing Pulp Fiction. But he never quite makes it. And so when Billy Wilder and the producers of Double Indemnity were looking for someone to adapt James M. Cain's novel, uh, this was around when Raymond Chandler was getting some cachet as a very good Pulp Fiction writer himself. So he's brought on board to adapt the screenplay you brought it all home except for the anti-catholic hatred i don't know how that plays in but we'll uh, come back in a future episode we'll come back in a future episode in in fine style i promise it's a teaser for another one that was interesting but um so can you can you do you know anything about billy wilder like like tell us a little bit more about billy wilder like uh, who roxanne going to roxanne for this one yeah go for roxanne Yeah, billy wilder is like one of probably the most like famous directors of the first half, well, American, of the first half of the 20th century. But he's originally from Austria. So he's one of the ones, like, when we were talking about film noir and all these, like, emigrate directors, he's one of the ones, like, he escaped Nazism and then moved to the U.S. And, yeah, he, so he, his roster of films is, like, incredible. Like, Double Indemnity is just his third one. And in, it didn't win any Oscars. I think it was nominated for, like, seven uh, but he did end up winning an Oscar for the one after, which I think it's... The Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend, yeah. But then he obviously made, he made some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, all these like unforgettable films of like the classic Hollywood era of the 50s, 60s, well, more 50s. Um, and he was known as kind of like, uh, like the story was really important to him, which is why I think him and Chandler... Jake, Jacob, you would know this, fought a bit. Like, story and plot was really important to him. Like, he was known for that. Um, less so his visual style, like, probably except for Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard because they have, like, the, the noir visual style, but that was less from him and more, like, the cinematographers. But, like, acting and plot were really important to him. So he was known as, like, the actor's director. And he was able to get a lot of these actors come back that weren't really like playing big roles anymore like in this there's edward g robinson who plays the role of keys who was like a huge actor in the 30s uh but known for like gangster roles and he like convinced him to play this like insurance guy (laughs) which um he plays it incredibly but anyway we can talk about that later and he did the same with sunset boulevard he has all these incredible cameos in it like uh um buster keaton and cecil b demille and stuff so people wanted to work with him basically 
Okay. Because so, also, I think sorry. he got a lot of Oscars for his actors. Ah, I see. So what yeah. we have here is we got this like this this joining of these. Is it is it fair enough to say joining these two these two people? You got on the one hand this like visionary genius director who's amazing at like getting these awesome performances out of his actors and like Billy a plot, and on the other hand we have this guy who can't do math and hates Virginia Woolf, so therefore has horrible taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kidding. I like Raymond Chandler. Um, but I think I think they did end up working well together because. Uh, well, it goes pretty poorly. We have another okay. one of Raymond Chandler's. Uh, controversial age gap relationships. So there's a lot of friction between him and Billy Wilder because Billy Wilder is quite a bit younger than Raymond Chandler at this point. I think Ray, Raymond's Raymond in his, Chandler like, uh, famously early... likes older people. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Ray, Billy Wilder's about 50 years too young for uh, Chandler's taste. Um, and uh, they don't get along because at this point in Chandler's life, his his work ethic consists of like hanging out in the mountains with his wife and writing when he wants to and writing bitchy letters to his publisher. Sounds and then, great. <laughs> and then he gets hired to work in Hollywood where he's reporting to a guy who's a lot younger than him um, and who's like a pretty confident dude by all accounts. Uh, but he has to like show up at an office and they have to like write to a deadline because they have to like make a movie at some point. Uh, and this is not very good for Raymond Chandler, who also has a, a pretty bad drinking problem. Um, and and kind of the way that it, it starts breaking down is that Wilder kind of tells Chandler, "Here's how it's gonna go. I'm gonna handle like most of the heavy lifting. You just fill in the dialogue, bro." And this does not sit well with Chandler, who sees himself as someone who should have like a lot of control over the script. Um, but they ultimately make it work, but not without at least one funny anecdote, which is um, they had a bit of a blowout three weeks into their relationship where uh, Wilder gets to the office and, you know, clock strikes nine. Chandler's not there. He waits a little longer. Chandler's not there. And then at around 10 o'clock, he goes to see the executive producer because he's like, hey, where, where's our boy Ray? Um, and he goes in there and his producer's uh, uh, reading a letter that he describes as follows from Raymond Chandler. And the letter says, it was a letter of complaint against me. He couldn't work with me anymore because I was rude. I was drinking. I was fucking. I was on the phone with four broads. With one, I was on the phone. He clocked me for 12 and a half minutes. I'd asked him to pull down the Venetian blinds. The sun was streaming into the office without saying please. Um, so this is what the executive producers reading from Raymond Chandler. And then a little later in this... Wait, um, so this is Raymond Chandler wrote this letter complaining about Billy Wilder? That's right, yeah. Okay. And then Billy Wilder's response to this is in later in one of his... Um, uh, he, when he tries to explain like why they didn't get along, Wilder says, Well, one, my German accent. Uh, I knew the craft better than he did. I drank after four o'clock, and I was fucking on girls, is his uh, response to Chandler's complaint. But ultimately, they patch things up, and then... Damn. So yeah. we got a pretty fraught uh, production going on here, and I'd also like to mention that I, you know, as as a uh, true to form, Jacob, we can't get through a single episode without you reading a block of text at us. <laughs> <laughs> you love it. That's why I'm here. That's my role. You sit in the dark. I read blocks of text. <laughs> uh, he made it sound almost natural if you didn't call him out. <laughs> Sorry. One last interesting thing about the production, and it relates to the book we read last time, is just that uh, uh, a big hater of James M. Cain uh, is Raymond Chandler. Like, he thinks his dialogue is mm. terrible. He finds his book, he's, like, he's annoyed by James M. Cain because he thinks that he writes, um, like, working-class people uh, in this kind of, like, very inauthentic way. He says, like, he's basically, like, a smart guy pretending to be a dumb guy to make a book that sounds like it's by not smart people. Um, so he actually, and, but the thing is, he also realizes that he's kind of, like, water skiing in the wake of James M. Kane. So this kind of eats at Chandler a little bit. And there's this disagreement they have, Wilder and Chandler, about is the dialogue in the book good? Um, and Chandler went to the trouble of hiring actors to do a reading of the dialogue from the book to prove that it sucked ass. And then him and Wilder went about rewriting it. So this gets to a question that that's, Kevin's had That's a few super times. interesting. Yes. Yeah, that okay, that is super ahead. interesting because of what they arrived at. Is yeah, a, no. Does not sound very... like. It does not sound well, like the opposite of the James. It doesn't sound like especially like naturalistic if that's what you're going for. Also, no, no. as a writer, Raymond Chandler, he doesn't have that same terse like Hammett Kane style, but like I wouldn't mm, okay, I have to reread some channel, but I wouldn't say he's like exactly 
like like a, a dialogue master either. I mean, it's definitely an affected style, especially <laughs> like every book is just like first person from Marla's perspective, right? I mean, right. I mean, this movie it was striking that like the plot is pretty similar to the book we read last week, but the yeah the dialogue was one thing that was different. Um, but yeah, it is a lot of just like snappy one-liners and double entendres about like the woman's in a towel and he's talking about insurance and he's like, you're not fully covered. And like a lot of, that was pretty much the entire movie was, was stuff like that. That was the dialogue. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's talk about insurance. Well, let's sorry, talk about this movie. Sorry, one, okay, one, last, ahead, one last point yeah. here. I just want to make, and, I'll, and, I'll, right, and then I have no more. I have, my notes are done after this. Is just one of the funny <laughs> things about what you're talking about, Kevin. You uh, promise? About the you promise? Next 40 minutes. Go ahead. Uh, I promise. I promise. Uh, the, the, the funny thing you're talking about is like, what is this like weird, like thing that they arrive at is that, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler both love mm-hmm. American vernacular. Neither of them speak it. Billy Wilder, as Roxanne mentioned, is an Austrian Jewish guy. And confused Raymond Chandler is a guy who's American by birth, but is trying to be as like 19th century English as possible at all times. And he would like keep scrapbooks of like cool slang he saw in the newspaper and things he overheard at the lunch counter. But neither of these guys are really like Native American like English speakers. That's funny, but he, <laughs> but he thought James M. Kane was like was like cosplaying working class people when he was literally yeah. like writing down things that he heard on the lunch counter to reuse. And, and they books. both and they both walk around with these affected walking canes. So they're like in the office wandering around tapping these malacca sticks it's also funny because, like, for Kane, he's like this affected, failed opera singer as well. Right? Yeah. It's like, it's funny to think of both of them as like trying to pretend to be working class, you know? And both of them are like mad that they're writing pulp fiction. It's like they both think they're too good for it. <laughs> Neither of them escape. <laughs> I read, I think, probably on the Wikipedia that Billy Wilder, a quote from Billy Wilder saying that when he, he thought he, that Raymond Chandler would look cooler than he did, and he thought he looked like an accountant. <laughs> when he walked in jeez i hope we never saw james m kane <laughs> yeah. actually we uh we all saw we all saw raymond chandler in this movie because uh he has a cameo about 15 minutes in yes he does he's reading a newspaper right yeah right, let's talk, you know what we haven't let's, done yet summarize the movie yes let's talk yeah. about the plot of this movie see so, the last episode okay no. <laughs> so the plot of this movie uh follows pretty closely the plot of the book which just to remind viewers is this uh, insurance salesman, Walter Neff, teams up with this uh, murderous wife, Phyllis, to, who wants to murder her husband and claim the insurance money. He helps her out. Turns out to be a big mistake. Walter's co-workers tend to sort of piece the plot together. And as they get closer and closer to him and Phyllis, their relationship falls apart. They both try to kill each other. He gets shot um, in the book. She doesn't. They end up both on a cruise together where they commit a murder-suicide, right? He also falls in love with her, um, not underage, but nearly, barely legal, um stepdaughter and there's a I don't know if I would say he falls in love with her in the movie in the book he does the murder suicide cruise doesn't happen in the movie I'm saying in the book that's what happens in the book so we're talking about the movie (laughs) I know but I want to talk about the I'm just reminding viewers because I think uh, listeners I think it's interesting talk about the differences in the movie of which there aren't many but there are a few right and one of the main one of the main differences that we start off with is that the movie opens up with uh, Walter driving down the streets of Los Angeles kind of chaotically and then he stumbles into his office at night. Office memorandum. Walter Neff to Barton Keys, claims manager. And he starts recording his confession. Into uh, the horn of Gondor. Into the <laughs> horn of Gondor. Uh, into a dictaphone. Where it, and then the movie, the, the main plot of the movie starts as a flashback. That's, that's the main... That's how the movie starts, and that is a departure from the book, where the book also- is a confession, but it isn't... We don't... As 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 you know, viewers, as the audience in the book, we don't know immediately how this ends. Whereas in the movie, we do. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff. He he talks yeah. about how he didn't get the girl. He didn't get the money. Uh, yeah. You know, this murder was all for naught. But that yeah. change to the story like introduces like a few things that are classic to film noir, so like the narration, and then the like fl- the, uh, the the flashbacks, yeah, which you don't have in the book, right? So like that's classic film noir. It's also like a drunk, sweaty guy driving around at night, smoking cigarettes, sitting in like a darkly lit office, 
Everything he's not drunk though. That. He's dying. He's he's shot in the shoulder. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah, but when, when you first see right. him, I thought he was drunk see, at the time. Yeah, sorry. When you yeah. first see him, you don't know that he's dying. He he, he does look like something's wrong with him. Yeah, yeah. I also yeah. very sweaty. I will say the the opening. I love the opening shot of this movie. Yes. which is just like a silhouette. I wrote in my notes of a man on stilts walking along train tracks. Is that correct, or did I make a mistake in my notes? No, that's correct. Why is he on stilts? It's not stilts. It's crutches. Crutches. Oh, crutches. crutches. He's not yeah. thinking about like, crutches. Right. What are you <laughs> I talking about? My, I was looking at my notes and I'd be like, that can't be right. But, but. It's crutches I was just because. the wrong word. <laughs> because because the, when he pretends to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's what's the guy's name that he murders again? Diedrichson. Yeah, because he pretends yeah. to be Diedrichson, who, you know, has a broken leg at the time. Um. So do you guys you guys like this this change from the book? I, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty interesting. Is uh is definitely sets up the hook a bit more. You know, knowing that everything's going to go wrong with this like sort of plot, right? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, in the book, it's kind of like he hints that everything. You know, he says something about oh, you know about it from the papers. Like he hints like something's big is going to happen. Um, and then the whole book is just kind of like him explaining the scheme. So I think the movie did kind of. It almost felt like a second pass to me where they had like reworked the way the action kind of plays out in an interesting way. Yeah, to make it a bit more interesting. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just feel like the book. Yeah. But also because I had seen the movie first, but the book paces it. Uh, the movie paces it better, I think. I agree. Yeah. I, I find this is a more interesting uh, beginning um, mm-hmm. to this story. So a- after we get the sort of uh, sweaty dictaphone confession, then then we get to the main action and we start the first scene, you know, Walter is going, you know, to try and sell some insurance. And then we have uh, what reminds me a lot of Postman Always Rings Twice, like a really big, you know, entrance for our female, uh, you know, protagonist or female she's, femme fatale. She's naked in a towel. She, she's she's she, she, she it's barbara stanwick come uh, so so walter neff uh walks into this house this like spanish villa even talks about it and he's sort of at the bottom of the stairs and then she walks out in a towel at the top of the stairs looking down on him and then they start uh you know doing all their double entendres and like witty back and forth and we can see her bare arms. Um, she has pretty Ooh. decently defined delts, I would say. <laughs> ah. you know, maybe she does some lifting back then. I don't know. What do you guys think? She's a good-looking lady. She's a good-looking lady, and she's got that uh, like that hairstyle where like like I don't I, I don't I don't know much about hair. I'm losing my hair, um, so. <laughs> and as I lose my hair, I get less and less interested in it. But like she's got those rolls that go up in the front, like above her forehead. Well, what what is that? I, I think the hair was like criticized because some people said it like the wig looked really bad, but then so, <laughs> Wilder kind of defended it by saying like it was like that's what he wanted because it made her look a bit phony and cheap. Which uh, one of the producers got really mad about because they had to pay a fuck ton of money for Barbara Stanwyck and the producer said, I thought I was paying for Barbara Stanwyck and I got George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but did George Washington wear such a seductive anklet? Yeah, he wasn't yeah, when you guys see an anklet that's a bit too tight on a woman's ankle, does that drive you guys absolutely mad? Drives me absolutely wild. And it drives our boy, uh, Walter Neff, completely wild. And then he immediately, you know, he's, he's really, he's allured by this anklet. You know, he's, he's aching he's for anklets. Uh, but, you know, but all, game... all men, all red-blooded American men cannot resist a finely made anklet, right? But right um, from the beginning, the game between the two is so flawless. Like, he doesn't even look down at the anklet once you know but like you know by what he's saying that he's like noticed it and then he's like what's inscribed on it so i don't know just the the game between their two them two from the beginning i, I just like it's like such a treat watching them there's yeah. a speed limit around these parts sir oh, so yeah, just to mention like the all keep the going. double no, entendres Kevin, all Kevin, the, keep oh, going yeah. keep going keep doing your impression here yeah, sorry kevin can you repeat oh, yeah. that how fast was i going oh, yeah, what is it 45 how fast was i going about 90. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's actually I mean, interesting the, about the double entendres sexy. because like one of the, the issues with a- adapting this this book into screen is that it kept getting rejected by the censors at the Hayes Code. 
Um, and so one of the things they were trying to do is they wanted the adaptation to still have some of like the sort of sexual lusty content of the book and they had to find a way to get it past the censors. So that's how you end up with all this, like they had to send, I think the screenplay to the censors. Um, and the whole plan was, is we're going to send in these double entendres that on the page don't look like much, but then we're going to tell the actors later to like ham it up. So it becomes like very charged sexually. And that was kind of the idea. Is there anything I can do? The insurance ran out on the 15th. I'd hate to think of you having a smashed fender or something while you're not uh, fully covered. Perhaps I know what you mean, Mr. Neff. I've just been taking a sun bath. No pigeons around, I hope. But then it becomes this kind of like trope of noir. Did you guys, you did you guys find this sexually charged? Yes. Yes. Yes, but like, Not I don't know. <laughs> like I wasn't yeah. turned on if that's what you're asking, but I think it was clear that the actors were supposed to be sexually interested in each other. Well, you anticipated my second question. <laughs> it did just turn you, Kevin, on. That's what I needed to know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess. Mm. Um, yes, but also I think right from the beginning, um, you feel like they're playing a game with each other more than then they're actually like attract like i feel like they found someone fun to play with then they're actually maybe attracted to each other i thought and he was just that- trying to sell insurance <laughs> <laughs> i thought he was trying to find out about our driving habits <laughs> our listeners may not know this but making podcasts costs money thankfully our sponsors come on board to help cover our costs this season and we could not ask for a better sponsor for this show the name of that sponsor is Perfect Books. Jacob, would I find any bad books at Perfect Books? Dare I say imperfect books? You won't find medium books. You won't find average books. You won't find bad books or soft books or hard books. You'll find perfect books at Perfect Books. Oh, I think you'll find some hard books. Well, fuck me because I am not in the mood or in the business of purchasing (laughs) medium books. I only want one thing, and that's Perfect Books. Thank you, Perfect Books, for sponsoring the show. We really appreciate it. Um, please, people, if you're in the Ottawa region, go to Perfect Books, buy lots of books. We support buying books. We support Perfect Books. Perfect Books supports us. Perfect situation. Even if you're not in Ottawa, you go straight there. You fly there. You buy a ticket. You go there. So one one thing that these I think is interesting is it's like in the book the the husband is just like he, he's a nobody he's like they they don't he has no personality yeah. he's just kind of and it makes sense because in the end he turns out he's like prey right it's like this woman turns out to be like a so i matter an axe murderer type like predator who's going around and doing this stuff um in the movie i think they like in a hollywood way to, to gain more i don't know motive or sympathy they make him like a misogynistic asshole he like hits her and yells at her about money, and he's looking. Well, that's, no, what that's, she what we see. that's what she said. No, we see him like screaming at her and being a, and being like an asshole. Like the only things we see of him, like he's being a piece of shit. He's not pleasant, but also I think it's clear from if you watch the whole movie that you can't really trust her. But in the scenes that we do see him, I agree that he's not like a pleasant person. Yeah. Um, so he's so a bad Phyllis, guy. Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis convinces uh, Walter to you know join her in in killing her husband and he agrees to set up the insurance so that they can get double indemnity and get a big payday and then like in the book he has this moment where you know he works for insurance all the time and wait wait pause pause she doesn't really convince him she doesn't he's the one who says this you're right you want to you want to kill your husband right and she's like no and then she goes with (laughs) a apartment later (laughs) right right but anyway, I, I would say like she she doesn't convince him like she just coyly mentions the insurance and then he's like you want to kill him right and yeah. but but this is what I think is different than in the book is that one of my thing with the books is I with the book is I didn't really understand why he like I didn't really understand the, his motive wasn't clear to me plus that Phyllis disappears for like most of the book I didn't really get it as much as i do in the movie and like i feel like in the movie right when he mentions it it's like he comes alive like i don't even think is that he wants her is that he wants to come up with the perfect insurance fraud and he's like kind of getting off on that idea like more than like getting off on her that's kind of and i feel like that's really clear in the movie like you can see that they're like turning each other on at the idea she's getting turned on by like killing her husband and getting money and he's getting turned on by like doing this like perfect murder insurance plan 
Yeah, but that's kind of in the book too, right? Like he's it's like he's been thinking about this plan for a long time and now he's just stumbled into the situation where he can deploy it. I guess, but I just didn't like feel that as much in in the book. Yeah. He talks about it in the book, but I, I take your point. But yeah, and he, he talks about in the book where he's like, he he feel he feels like he spends all this time thinking about how other people are cheating insurance that he feels like he could do it. And like, it's almost like a point of pride. You know, he has to try. Yeah, and then also in the movie that's different is like keys. There were, well, I don't know if you want to keep going with the plot or if we can... Well, let's 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 just quick. I'll, 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 I'll quickly summarize, and we'll get up to keys right away. So basically, they decide to kill uh, their husband, uh, Phyllis's husband, <laughs> their husband, <laughs> Phyllis's husband, and they go through it exactly as they do the book. It's just this, it's the same thing, you know. They they minus the cinema. Uh, no, that happens much later. I mean, the murder of the the husband, right? They they he, yeah. he sets up an alibi. Um, the husband happened to injure his leg. So Walter, you know, uh, gets crushed it, crutches on the train. They murder him before they get to the train. They plant the body. He jumps off the train. They set it up perfectly. Um, keys is his coworker who in the book is described as like this ultra insurance pedant. And in the movie he kind of is, but a little more charismatic sounding. It sounds like, and so, so Keys is his coworker and someone he admires, and they have like a really uh, sort of awesome, friendly relationship. And Keys ends up becoming the one of the antagonists for their plot, right? So he sort of figures it out. So, so, yeah, so Keys, tell me, Keys basically takes the place of a detective in this story, right? Like he's mm-hmm. an insurance yes. man, but he's really the one who's who's undoing the whole scheme or getting to the bottom of the whole scheme. Yeah, with his pens and, and his cigars. Yes, and his one flaw is that he has a soft spot for Walter. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was interesting watching this with my wife who hadn't read the book my wife yeah <laughs> thank you roxanne um and she her first comment was just like did an insurance company write this movie because you know, <laughs> it just like it makes insurance seem like so fun and like dangerous and exciting and like she works in benefits and i don't her day-to-day is you know filling out forms and stuff and not like getting to the but bottom like, of may- murders maybe it was like maybe it was more like kind of glamorous in the 40s i, I think know. like maybe there was an maybe she's on something that like maybe there was an insurance company that was like doing some some subtle recruitment or something and they were like snuck their message in here <laughs> You're saying this is product placement by an insurance company where they have like one yes. guy going like, I've seen the actuarial tables. Do you know how unlikely this murder his death is? Like, yeah, he's definitely uh, makes, you know, insurance exciting. Um, he should yeah. be their main recruiter. Yeah. The other thing my wife said was that she was like really off put by how many times uh, Walter says baby. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Walter, I didn't do it and I'm not going to do it. Not if there's an insurance company in the picture, baby. They know more tricks than a carload of monkeys. <laughs> she, she played a comment early on in the movie and then it just like it became it was just like i don't know it became this thing every time he said it which is like every third sentence it's the, yeah. it's i kind of love really it baby feel, i don't know <laughs> makes your skin crawl a little bit i actually hate the like i hate baby as like a term of endearment between two adults it just weirds me out all the time do you baby <laughs> <laughs> anyway continue telling your little story baby me? Am I the baby? <laughs> yeah, you're the baby. All right, I'll be the baby. All right, maybe I'm trying to see the appeal. Yeah, so I, I, I actually want to talk about Keys more. Uh, I don't know if there's more to say, but I just, I really love this performance. Uh, like, he's just really bombastic, and uh, I love the, I love the recurring motif where he, you know he always forgets a lighter for his like cheap cigars, and then like Walter has to light it, and obviously there's the ending, or it's like the, the final scene. You know, they sort of build up to that um but yeah but he has the stand-in for the detective uh character and you know he's sort of getting closer and closer to walter and phyllis who um you know are doing everything from meeting covertly at the supermarket to having like this hilarious scene where she's literally hiding behind a door oh that's the best that was my favorite scene of the whole movie when keys keys is visiting walter in his apartment and then she shows up phyllis shows up not knowing he's there and then she has to like hide behind a door while keys is leaving it's just like so visually it was a very striking scene and it was like it was almost like a gag like a visual gag i don't know if there's a dramatic word for that yeah, it's like gag. Yeah. And I wonder if, like, I kind of think it, it's like he, he's kind of knows. That he's, like, testing out his friend, but he doesn't want to think it's his friend. Because there's, like, that that he shows up right when Phyllis is about to show up. And there's, 
Another thing that happens is it's like he's got he the little man in his chest that tells him something's wrong. And he's yeah, <laughs> it's a quado. It, he's got a little quado. That's right. In his chest. That's a little. That's a little callback to season one. Philip K. Dick, Total Recall, baby. But he's way more badass in the movie, and I don't know yeah. if this is like a big kudos to Edward G. Robinson, like who, as I said, was like a big used to just play gangsters so maybe brought a bit of that energy in but it's also probably the way the, ca- the character is written because I feel, feel like in the book he's like I just remember he liked to check his calendar a lot like he was kind of lame yeah. right and he's also described as like physic, like really obese yeah I, th- I think the performance like that's the thing is like he he adds a lot of charisma to this role for this guy mm-hmm. who's like ultra competent at being like the best insurance guy ever you know and like and it, and it works and it's great and he like he totally dominates every room he's in uh, I love this scene where they go to meet the boss. Uh, the boss character is a bit different than the book too. In the book, he's uh, the the younger son of the uh, young he's heir the to the insurance yeah, company. He's yeah. a failed son, inherits it from his father. And then, you know, Keys is in there in his shirt sleeves and he's like, you know, he's making fun of the fact that everyone else is so formal. And like, I just, it's just, it's really hard not to, to like him and not root for him, you know? Or this scene where... Um or where Walter is on the phone with Phyllis and then he pretends that it's like someone woman named Margie and then Keys just like stays in the background <laughs> and he's like I bet she drinks straight from the I, bottle yeah I bet she drinks straight from the bottle <laughs> my favorite key, my favorite Keys line was there's a widespread feeling that just because a man has a large office he must be an idiot yeah <laughs> I wrote that down too <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's was that Keys or was that Keys is the boss? Is the boss? No, that was Keys. Oh no, that was the boss. No, no, that was the boss. Yeah, not Keys. All right, I'm a it's fan in his like long winded, is the long winded kind of you know fucking. My my notes are failing me today. Yeah, your man. notes are bad. That was a totally <laughs> misattributed on, quote. The man on that, stilts. That was, <laughs> the that was the boss trying to convince Keys that he knew what he was talking about. And Keys is like, no, you are an idiot. Keys's defining quotes are "little man" and "I bet you drink straight from the bottle," which like. <laughs> That's an insult, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, but, yeah. I guess the closer you are to the source, the worse it is. Or when he's, I think I wrote this down. I don't know why this, it struck me, but he's trying to convince Walter to come for a drink with him. And he's like, I'll buy you a martini. And then like, Walter's not convinced. And he's like, with two olives. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would convince me. I was like, well, if you got two olives, I'm there. Uh, we'll, we'll have to remember that, Roxanne. <laughs> yeah. But I'll drink straight from the bottle. <laughs> two olives on the side. All right, come come to come to Ottawa. I'll 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 buy you two olives. <laughs> um, the yeah, the visual stuff though. I don't know. There there were a few kind of interesting, really striking scenes like that, like the door scene where she's hiding behind the door. And there's like it was it. I almost laughed out loud in the scene where they're getting in the car to murder. Uh, what's his name again? Diedrichson. Yeah, yeah Diedrichson. Mm-hmm. And then you like, and then like you see just like this evil Walter looking in the back seat, looking super evil with his hat like scrunched up against the seat. And all the all the Venetian blinds, blinds. lighting stuff. Like I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, it's classic. so good. Yeah, it's so good. Even the scene when they're in the grocery store and the the perspective of the camera is like someone eavesdropping on them, and it keeps changing perspective. So at one point, it's sort of like back over their shoulder like someone who's like a little bit away but can hear what they're saying and then it's like on the other side of like the the aisle with all the shelves like it's almost like they're looking over down on them and it creates a sense of paranoia like really really amazing uh by the way not super discreet it's not like they're in a walmart like they're in like with the equivalent of like a small pharmacy and there's like other people standing next to them so i was watching it with my wife and she's like everyone's listening to their conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's like people right next to them. Like, that's not convincing at all. I like, absolutely love the scenes in like the grocery store, drugstore, or whatever. Not it's a like, single piece of fresh produce in sight. Because, it's, yeah. it's the 40s. Like a, it's, everything is everything cans. <laughs> everything is cans and boxes and like just the aesthetic of what that looks like. And like the fact that the first time they're talking, when they're talking about, yeah, the first time they meet to talk about the plan, they're in the baby food section. There's like a woman who's like, excuse me, I need my baby food. And like, I mean, she's like, why do they always put it so high? And then I, so freak, I in the book, where do they talk about the murder? Just at her house? Uh, I think it's all over the phone. comes to his house. She shows no, up they also apartment. have a system where they can call from like a, a, a store as well. Um, yeah. But they, they don't have one like that. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be as interesting visually if they're like just <laughs> talking on the phone. 
Um, just one other thing before we gloss over the grocery store, and this is purely just like a, a cosmetic thing, but I just, I love the glasses, the sunglasses look oh, yeah. that Barbara Stamick has there. It's just that, over that, the that, hair. That looks, yeah, that looks, that looks, that looks cool. One more visual thing that like I found really striking the murder scene when uh, Walt is killing Diedrichson. It doesn't show it. It's just like a close up on Phyllis's face the entire time. She's kind of like not really reacting that much. Didn't they do the same scene? The, the postman always rings twice. No, I think you see him. You see him whacking the guy, and the postman always rings twice. Oh, really? In yeah. my, yeah, my memory is like the same thing where they focus on uh, the femme fatale yeah. expression. Anyway, I thought that was a cool. I thought that was a cool little visual thing. I like that. I like. I like these like these old style like a you know psycho thing. You know, where it's like things are just happening sort of off screen. You're not getting like the gruesome blood squirting everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like both, but I appreciate the restraint. Agreed. I like both. I, li- I like like some over the top ridiculous gore, especially if it's funny. But it's also nice to see the action reflected in people's reaction, like the action reflected in the reactions of the people. You know, because that's actually ultimately more interesting than wondering if something looks realistic or not. You know. Yeah, and I feel like this movie is all in the subtleties. Like, I I don't think like gruesome violence would that would be a different movie. Like, it would have changed the tone of the movie. Can you imagine? Suddenly, 40 minutes in, there's just like a stabbing and like blood <laughs> spraying all over the car. They're like, ah, a shot of the an, car crashes and explodes. Yeah, a shot of an anklet completely drenched in blood. <laughs> or just an anklet like on a, like, you know, like a, a dismembered leg. Yeah, just like someone's like saws <laughs> off her leg to steal her anklet. Oh, sounds like we're writing the sequel to Double Indemnity. Triple Indemnity. <laughs> Triple Indemnity, the little man comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Said Richard keys Robinson walking around with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Um, keys open doors. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was a bad quote from a rap song. Um, so Keys gets, you know, ever closer to finding out the truth. And then, you know, uh, Walter and Phyllis start to crack. And um, this is kind of one of the more, this is also like a, a thing that I found pretty interesting in the book, but I think the movie maybe does it better, but. Walter starts cracking under the anxiety and the paranoia. And I actually thought this part was done pretty well. It was pretty interesting to see the scenes where he's alone and he's, you know, he's talking about how he can't like, you know, he's, he's just, he's completely cracking under the pressure, you know, the anxiety and the paranoia is getting to him. But then he's still, when he's interacting with other people, he's still like putting on a tough, you know, hey baby, kind of like uh, <laughs> outer exterior. And but you can still see that it's like getting like more and more frayed. Um, I thought that was like pretty well done. I thought that was pretty cool. Did did you guys? Did that speak to you guys at all? Uh, maybe it speaks to me as a you know a really anxious person. Yeah, the scene in Keys's office when Keys brings the witness in the most irritating man in the world to witness you do a murder that guy jackson from medford oregon uh and 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 walter is just like standing in the background as keys is quizzing this witness about like so like describe the guy you saw and then uh jackson is going on about how like oh no the person i saw was way younger than Dietrichson was supposed to be and and Fred G. McMurray's like facial reactions in the background are so good and he's like trying to maintain and he like turns around and then he's like oh no if I turn around like he only saw me from behind I should face back the other way uh, because otherwise he's gonna recognize me and then like as uh, Jackson from Medford Oregon is uh, leaving he starts being like I think I know you from somewhere and I love that interaction between them as well where um, Jackson's just trying to be like are you sure it's not this like fishing trip and and, and Walter is like, oh, my God, please, I need this to end. I need you to stop talking to me. Please leave. And then, like, Jackson's still asking if he can comp his, like, visit to the chiropractor. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's, like, super goofy. So it's kind of, like, a funny mix with, like, how stressed out Walter is. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's just like, whatever, can I get a massage? <laughs> Go see a nice osteopath in town. What a, what a strange yeah. thing to say. <laughs> I think a difference, though, again, a difference with the book. Like, in the movie, it's kind of like, he kind of knows from the start that this is not working out. Like, basically, as soon as the murder happens, you could tell that he's like, uh-oh, like, this is going badly, and we are not on the same page. Whereas in the book, there's, like, a little tension for a while where it's like, oh, are they gonna, is it going to work out? And then think she slowly turns on him, where this is just, like, immediately, he just, I feel like immediately everything starts to fall apart the minute it starts happening, you know? Yeah, and like Phyllis, she like 
really keeps her cool. Like, I, I feel like in the book, well, I don't know. If, I can't remember if, like, you think she loves him. But here, to me, it's obvious that it's, like, she's well, trying to pretend. Like, like remember, like, we're pretending that we love each other. Whereas I think she also knows that it's false. You know, she keeps yeah. saying, like, I love you. <laughs> I love you. Like she, And she, he just, you like, yeah, 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 I, I love you. No, in the, the movie? movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, in the book, but remember I, she starts sleep. She starts banging her daughter-in-law's uh, boyfriend. Well, let's let's get in that right. See. So so Nino Zacchetti or Nino Zacchetti. Nino, yeah, you got it. Nino you got Zacchetti. It. Uh, you know, and Lola. This 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 the secondary relationship. So Walter starts hanging out with Lola again, just like he does in the book. But it's less of a sort of romantic relationship in the movie, which is a very good decision because that part was creepy as hell in the book, and. Um, this is where Walter starts to sort of plot against Phyllis, right? Um, but I, I agree with you where Roxanne that in the movie a big difference is the relationship between those two. They seem to be trying to put it on a little more, like like you said, like Phyllis is more. Um, it's like cat and mouse a little bit, and sh- and she's like, she's trying to play him, and he, it's like he's starting to realize or as the movie goes on. Where, but even at the beginning, I don't think he was fully like in love with her anyway but i think maybe he thought this would be more of like a i don't know more of a win for him or something like he he seemed more thrilled he thought he was in power i think is what yeah. the thing was he thought he was yeah, calling maybe, yeah, the shots yeah. and like taking advantage of it and then he sort of realizes that one he's completely powerless in the situation because he's gonna get caught and then like phyllis also does not seem as worried as he does He's like, he's like, don't sue. She's like, of course I'm going to sue. I did it for the money. Like, <laughs> like, what do you expect me to do? She's like, totally does not have that same sort of fear that he has, right? When he's cracking. Um, so that sort of power balance gets sort of shifted and that starts to make him uncomfortable. Um, and then when he starts hanging with Lola, she reveals, you know, that, you know, Phyllis uh, probably killed my mom. You know, she was a nurse. But they don't, unlike the book, they don't reveal also that, you know, Phyllis killed like a, you know, like half a dozen small children, yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Or, or they also unfortunately drop the uh, plot line where Phyllis puts on makeup and wears like a red smock and, and runs around as if she's like the visage of death, you know, um, <laughs> w- w- which was, which is regrettable. Um, well, it was black and white. So Ingmar Bergman did it. That was you know? the real um, issue. Seventh Seal. They wrote around the Hayes code. They could have made that happen. <laughs> um, but but with the scene I want to talk about uh, as we sort of wind this down is um, the, the the sort of penultimate scene, the confrontation between uh, Phyllis and Walter. Hello, baby. Just like the first time I came here, isn't it? We were talking about automobile insurance. Only you were thinking about murder. That is probably probably the most memorable scene for me in the movie. Um, so, uh, Jacob, what are your thoughts on this movie? Tell, uh, this scene, tell me about it. Rules. Everyone should watch it. You should stop listening to the podcast and you should no, download no, no, or right, pay money. Go watch Jacob. Double Indemnity <laughs> and then come back and hear me no. say that that was an incredible scene. Never tell anyone not to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jacob, you're, 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 you're cut from the podcast now. Um, oh, again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, devoted listeners remember there was a really good stretch of the podcast when Jacob was gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I love just the beginning of it where she's sitting on the couch and then like he's talking about like he's going to go wait for her and then you see the door opening in the background and it's like his shadow before he comes in. Um, I don't know, it's just a really beautiful scene and the, the banter is really amped up there and uh, I, I think it's great. And then she kind of cracks, you know, there's the whole thing where, you know, she was supposed to be sort of just doing this to manipulate him so that, you know, she could manipulate someone else to kill him, to get out of all of her troubles. And then she realizes that when it comes down to it, she can't do it. But the thing is, he can. He has to. And so you have that kind of last reversal at the end there. And um, I don't know. Wait, he great. has to? What are you talking about? He comes, to kill her. He killed yeah, but, her. But she... Ki- no, she shoots at him, she but then she him. misses. No, she hits him. She, she hits him, him once, shoulder. but it, yeah. She hits I him mean, in the shoulder, and then he's like, you missed, baby. <laughs> Goodbye, baby. Why don't I come baby? closer and you take another crack at it? Yeah. He yeah. says, yeah. you come at the king, and he, you like, best not miss. towards her after having just been shot. He gets shot. He gets shot. He he gets yeah. shot. That's yeah. why, yeah. but he, you know, he, he's fine. It's the 40s. You get shot in the shoulder all the time. But she's wearing this, like, fabulous, like, 
silk <laughs> pajama thing and like her anklet is back on and they kind of like, like reproduce the scene like the setting is the poses are the same as when they meet right like he's sitting on the yeah. edge of the sofa and she's kind of like lounging back on the couch smoking hmm. everyone's always smoking in this movie but yes and not as seductively as she smoking there's something i to hate the end. about this scene though i really hate it. so go ahead ask me what it is Tell us, tell us, you're so proud of yourself. What do you hate? (laughs) So she shoots him in the shoulder. She she prepares for this. She puts the gun on the sofa, like, you know, uh, under the cushion. She's ready. You know, it's just premeditated, you know, murder. She's, you know, been involved in a few murders now. And then she shoots him in the shoulder. And then he just, like, walks up to her. And he's like, give me the gun, baby. And then, um, <laughs> that's my, that's my terrible impression. And then Goodbye, she's baby. like, and then she's like, oh my God, I can't do this. Now I love you. Uh, you know, and then like, she's like, I didn't love you before, but now I do. Don't tell me it's because you've been in love with me all this time. No, I never loved you, Walter, not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart. I used you just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me. Until a minute ago, when I couldn't fire that second shot. I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. I'm not asking you to buy, just hold me close. And I'm watching this, I'm like, the fuck? (laughs) What? Because he's not afraid. Yeah. Is that why? Yeah, I'm, that's I'm is sure. that it? That's yeah. He holds his nerve. He's like, "Why don't you try again with?" Uh, and I'll move closer. So and then she's like, was, "Oh, he, this really was, gets my motor going." That that's it. That's what you think it is. I I, I thought so. it was lame. I thought it was just like it's just. I don't like, think she we, does we need, love him. We need to finish this movie with she this guy uh, confessing into a dictaphone. No, you know? I th- I think she she wasn't able to shoot him again, and then to like try to kind of cover up the fact that she shot him once. She was like, "Oh, I but I love you." And then she just didn't have the guts to shoot him again and finish the job. I don't think she actually does, like, love him. But even that, even that she doesn't have the guts, I don't like that she loses her nerve. And she goes, until a second ago, I couldn't fire that second shot. And then she's just, like, breaks. I feel like that's not her character. She's been so steady the whole movie. Like, I find that really disappointing. She's not actually, like, a murderer. Maybe she thought she was or she she's killed two to. people well she's killed one and a half people you know <laughs> well not, yeah, but not, partial, not she only gets like partial credit for yeah. i'm pretty sure yeah. in the in like you can i'm pretty sure in a court of law she would just be tried for 1.5 murders at this point. <laughs> well the, for <laughs> the first murder all she did was like open the windows and then the little lady died from pneumonia and then the second one she got the guy to do it so maybe she just wasn't built for like so you're saying it's like three act. quarters of a murder she's done. she's more of a mastermind you know what i mean a mastermind open the windows yeah what a She's an ideas person. <laughs> <laughs> Look out, Doctor Doom! Like <laughs> some pretty nefarious plots going on here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kevin, did, did did you find it disappointing? I mean, like that. Like, what did you think? Are you like, I don't know. Did you watch this with your eyes closed and your ears closed? Pretty much. Um, <laughs> no, I uh, I like Roxanne's interpretation of it. Why don't, we, why don't we choose to believe that? Let's choose to believe that it makes sense. And not that it's just a weird, ham-fisted Hollywood ending being stuck onto a movie that doesn't make any sense. But that that wasn't really the ending, though, was it? Yeah, the, the ending the, I thought was even yeah, better. it's a real real romance after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ending when we flash back to the when we go back to the beginning, right back to the beginning in a big full circle, and he's at his desk, and you find out he's not drunk; he's just been shot. Um, and Keys comes into the Well, office. the red spot's been growing over the course of the film. Like, every time it goes back to him, that little red blot around his shoulder is a little bigger. But yeah. yeah, I wanted to say there's ones that they go back to him, and he has six cups of coffee. In front of him. <laughs> what? And I was like, why don't you just... Why don't you just refill the one cup? <laughs> anyway, that's something I know. I'm tired. I don't give a shit. So another subplot of this movie is that like Walter's like really bad office etiquette. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was he just also, like, I like key, keys is like I got called here because you bled all over the place. Also, there's no more coffee cups. You haven't been washing them. Like you didn't put them in the washing machine. Like, I was looking for my mug, and like I guess they're all here, dude. It's like, uh, one of those mugs has keys on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah so anyway, yeah, I- Keys comes back and finds him. Well, here's the end of his confession, right? By then it's morning, right? Like he's been confessing all night, basically. 
Yeah. Um, and then he tries to like light his cigar, and then Keys takes the lighter from him and lights it for him, which like match, the whole the match because they, the match, they, they yeah. light it with their thumb, which I think is really cool. So the whole movie, he's been lighting Keys cigars, and then it reverses, and he says, "I love you too." Isn't that kind of beautiful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope uh, when I get caught for all my many crimes, and you know, I'm bleeding out to death, uh, that you know, one of you will be there to. <laughs> I guess one of us is going to be your middle manager. My middle manager, yeah. (laughs) Your middle manager will come over and be like, "I love you too," and then you'll they'll be fade to black. Like that's an inappropriate (laughs) call, HR. (laughs) So I wonder if he was trying to do this like elaborate insurance thing to impress him. Oh, you think that's real romance is between Walter and Keys? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Fine, that sounds good. Yeah, Keys is like, you're the only guy who could have beat me, right? He doesn't say that, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's a thing. Yeah. Because Keys wants him to be, because that's the whole thing in this movie too, right? Like Keys is trying to get him a promotion. He's like, stop being a salesman. Like you should be an insurance adjuster. And he's like, no, like that's that's not life for me. It would cost him a bit of income though. It would cost him less money. Hmm. So it'd be $50 I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember the time interval. But was. It, it seemed more like it was just like he was just wasn't interested in that lifestyle. Like he's a salesman. That's it. Yeah. He wants. He wants to be a man of identity. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Is he's like he's like he doesn't want to do a desk job. He wants to be a man of action. You know what I mean? And look, look where that got him. Uh, that's why the Red Riser officially sponsors desk jobs. That's right. <laughs> Everyone, get yourself a desk job. It's safer. Um, avoid the temptation to, you know, get in any illicit romances and commit some murders. Guys, you might as long not as know you this. have a standing desk, because if you're sitting at work, you're dying. You <laughs> might not right. know this, but the Rhetorizer is recorded at desks, for desks. That's, that's and true. this episode is also brought to you by our other sponsor, <laughs> cigarettes. Yes, cigarettes. <laughs> Smoke them, they make you cool. Start as young as you can. Jacob, can you please extol the many virtues of the tobacco industry for our <laughs> listeners? Go ahead. Make you look cool. It makes movies better. Uh, great, you know, lighting effect. It is wonderful, really. That's right. All your favorite, your four favorite hosts, the hosts you love to love equally, we're all smoking right now. And we're all going to be smoking till the day we die. Which is very soon. Let's give our final thoughts on this movie. You start, Kevin. I start? All right. That's right, baby. So, okay, I have mixed thoughts about this movie. I think to some degree I found it a little boring because we had just read the book, which was just kind of like a movie treatment. And it was kind of like, okay, this is just like a second draft of the book. And it's good. And like, like, we've talked about all the stuff I liked. There was a bunch of stuff I liked, but I liked the visuals and stuff. The story is not bad. Like, I don't mind the story. It's not bad. But it didn't, I don't know. I don't think this one's going to stick with me. Like, there are scenes from The Postman's Rings twice. Like, the first one that's still uh, stuck in my mind. Like, Lana Turner standing there and, like, her, her lipstick rolls across the room. Dead cat. Dead cat. Yeah, like, there's the, yes. There are these scenes that are really, Turban. like, stuck with me. And I don't, Is it because really, there's no cat in this? And this, I watched it several days ago. And as you've seen, I have already forgotten pretty much the entire movie. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. It doesn't, uh, I don't, I really don't think people need to watch this movie. I'm going to say that. But but I have a larger thought that like maybe this is a flaw with our whole system because like I'm really dreading future episodes where we're going to read books that are very plot and dialogue driven and then watch film adaptations of those books, which I'm sure in almost every case will be 85% the same as the book. <laughs> Unlike in our Philip K. Dick season where you had no idea what was going to happen. Like the characters would change, the plot would change, the tone would change. Like you didn't know what you were getting. In this case, it's like I read it, I watch it, I read it, I watch it, and uh, I'm, I'm a little... Well, I'm, I'm uh, wary of that in the f- well, my future. Let's hear it, Roxanne. No, this movie's great because I don't because like Postman Rings twice. If we're gonna compare, <laughs> I felt like it took exactly the dialogue from the book. So maybe it was more like the visual stuff that was fun. But this because the dialogue was completely different. Like it really 
hooked me. Like I don't know, I I, I love that zippy dialogue in in this movie. Like it makes it really fun to watch. Like I feel like it could almost be like sitting around the table and just I would still be entertained by this movie. And then the performances are amazing. Like uh, I don't know. Like I forget the name of the actor Fred McMurray, but I know they had oh, yeah. trouble casting that role because he's like kind of a pussy so none of the like leading men at the time wanted to take it but which like got, he, which, which role as well uh, walter Neff. walter uh, yeah. yeah yeah they had problem casting it because like he wasn't like a strong man right he's being played by this woman baby <laughs> um but i actually think he plays it like beautifully um and maybe well, he's he like know- so doofy he's so funny like it's like it's like he's like alternating between like being serious but he's like He's kind of like a big, like chunky guy, and and then also like having these like weird smiles on his face and he's like flirting and stuff. Like I don't know, I thought he was really funny and like really good in this role. Of, like, yeah, serious when he needed I think to be. He, and I think he uh, was worried too. I think he's a he was a comedy actor, so this he's a Broadway like, guy. Yeah, he was a Broadway guy. He hadn't done many films, I don't think, at this point, and it was like very against type to have him show up and be this kind of like sleazy murder plotting motherfucker. I really don't know what you guys are talking about because I found absolutely nothing notable about this guy. I, I thought he was like a pretty straight, like forties, like protagonist. Yeah. Like yeah, I didn't even like find him acting like a pussy. He's just like that much, yeah. No, I mean like the role. Yeah, I, 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 I get the role, but I just I didn't find his like performance. Like, yeah, I don't know. I feel part of kind of like. I feel like he was entirely so, replaceable. There are two kinds of people in this world: <laughs> the people who watch movies with their eyes, and the people who take them in some other way i don't know how i don't know how they're they're perceiving these With things their feet. or yeah you, you know like they're they're watching it from behind the pillow because it's like too scary or something I, I can't speak to I, I can't understand those people but for the first category i think this is a great movie i think everyone should watch it i think it's mandatory viewing i think i'm gonna see it again i think it rules i also think that if you read roger ebert's uh guide to film noir he has his 10 checklist of all the things you need for a film noir, this one hits all ten like a motherfucker. All so right, I recommend you Jacob. Google it, and you, it's a great you, film noir. If you want to read something else, movie. it'll help you enjoy this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the British in- Film Institute also had their like infogram, and d- Double Indemnity is the only one that like meets all the requirements for a film noir. That's good. Well, that's shit, what if, I, if, that's I, what if I had a checklist to watch with this movie, <laughs> yeah. maybe I would have enjoyed it more. <laughs> that's what I look. Look, it created a genre. It created a genre in two mediums, which is pretty cool, and I see why. Because you know, if it was like 1940s, and you know some like you know wasps were censoring everything you could watch on tv and then this came along i'd be like hell yeah this rules and it still rules today even though we have stuff that you know it can be much more graphic and explosive and whatever um i think it was powerful i think it was beautiful uh you know let's all let's all get the barber stanwick wigs out for halloween this year and have a great time that's right baby john it's so my turn now let that, right. other Your cancel, baby. let that other bread fall the other <laughs> so so the, the initial like the initial gimmick of the season was to convince kevin to like noir but i think the subplot of this is it's convincing me to hate noir because <laughs> <laughs> like i i watched I, I watched this movie in about eight different settings because my kids was acting up and i i was not rushing to get back to it um i kevin's take was exactly perfect and exactly how i felt um i i i like solid C plus, I guess, on this movie. You know, um, I, I I watched uh, a few months ago. I mentioned it, I think, in other episodes. I watched uh, the Third Man for the first time, and that movie had me riveted, sitting on the edge of my seat. That was an incredible movie. And I'm just mentioning that to say that, like, I don't hate the time period or anything like that. But I was like, this movie is just whatever. It's okay. I was really, I was really, I was expecting like an incredible, incredible movie, and um, I found it kind of dull. Um, it was really too close to the book. I just watched like a very similar movie, The Postman Always Rings Twice. I, I'm not looking forward to watching another one of these movies either. Um, please God, Although, no. we got a Hitchcock coming up, so I am looking forward to Strangers on a Train. Also, I would say like they're quite different. Like I don't know. I, I, yeah, they're very yeah, different. I wouldn't say they're... Because I think you're just thinking that because we watched two adaptations that are quite faithful to the books and also by the same writer. Also both like about it. insurance. So I, I, don't, I don't think this should like, yeah, like foreshadow the other movies. It's not going to be the same. We just watched two movies and read two books about insurance. So it's like, do, maybe do that's... Any, 
Do you have any thoughts about the shapes that passed before your eyes? Like, you guys, are that, you is that part of your evaluation? How to feel? Um. <laughs> no, I'm asking you how you feel about the shapes that you saw before your eyes in a sequence of visuals that formed the movie. I'm curious what you had to say about there that. There were some cool shots, I guess. <laughs> I said I like the sunglasses that she wears. You know, you heard me say that. You know, I said she had good delts. What else do you want me to say? <laughs> Those are the two positive things. <laughs> Those are the images that stuck with me. <laughs> and all the canned goods. <laughs> If it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger's head exploding, he doesn't care, baby. Uh, you say that. You say that like it's crazy. You say that like that's that's not like a sane response. Yeah, well, me and Jacob are right, and you guys are wrong, baby. <laughs> and the checklists agree with you guys, so me and John must be in the wrong. <laughs> and with that, we say goodbye, baby. <laughs> That was The Rhetorizer. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Rhetorizer is uh, me, Kevin, and uh, Roxanne over here, and uh, hey. Jacob, and oh, John. Yeah. We're the hosts. And uh, if you want to email us, you can email us at ashowaboutbooks at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at The Rhetorizer, where Roxanne makes very nice posts. Um, we're going to read a short story next week, The Homecoming by Dorothy B. Hughes followed by her novel, The Expendable Man. Starring Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> That'd be cool. Right? Yeah. That's an <laughs> adaptation. Yeah, adaptation yeah, right? we'll, watch, we'll watch Expendables uh, after reading The Expendable Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be the same.